0: If you turn to the book of Esther, we are in Esther chapter 6, and i um, going to carry on where we left off last week. So uh, again, I just want to just pray first as we, we come to God's Word, and just just Father, we just want to commit ourselves to you, Lord. Thank you for what you've spoken already. Thank you, Lord, for the way in which you're at work in our lives, And but Lord, we, we're here to hear from you, and so... We pray, Lord, that through your word, you would speak to us, that we might be changed and that we might glorify you. So, Lord, we we just pray, Lord God, um, just use these words, Lord, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder how often the, the, the question is asked, what are you doing tomorrow? Anything special on? I'm sure we've all had that conversation many, many times. Well, for Haman, tomorrow was going to be the best day of his life. And in no particular order, it was the day in which his self-appointed enemy was going to be killed. And also the day he would have the privilege of banqueting with the king and the queen. I guess for Mordecai, he was a little bit less optimistic Tomorrow was the day that he desperately was hoping would bring deliverance for the Jewish people, but there was no certainty in this. If things went well, it would be a day just like any other day. But neither of them were reckoning on the king having a sleepless night. Esther chapter 6. Let's hear the story again. That night... The king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, the attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor have some royal robes the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, that is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything that you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Now at face value, This chapter is full of just coincidences. Just lucky breaks, if you like, at least for Mordecai. So what are the chances that the king can't sleep and then decides to read about himself, picks the pages about Mordecai saving the king, and then guess who walks in at just the right moment? Haman, of course. It all fits together so eloquently. And the irony makes, it makes this chapter almost funny except that God isn't out to amuse us but to show us that he is in total command. And once again, the hand of the sovereign Lord is invisibly at work in the life of King Xerxes. God was working out his purposes whether the king knew it or not. So let's take a closer look at the clues of what God is doing through these very ordinary events. First of all, we have insomnia. We're told that the king just can't sleep. Perhaps the events of the day were just playing on his mind or perhaps the demand of the job. He he certainly had some financial concerns and worries to, to keep him awake. Whatever the reason, behind them all was the sovereign hand of the living God who never sleeps and who never stops working everything together for good. It was God who wanted to keep the king awake because he had something to tell him. Now, insomnia, of course, is a common problem. I don't know about you, but at times I find I toss and turn at night, getting increasingly frustrated that I just can't get over to sleep. But perhaps the next time that you're struggling to sleep, don't get angry. Instead, why not take a moment to listen to God? See, in the quietness of the night, God can speak powerfully into your life. Psalm 46 verse 10 reminds us, be still and know that I am God. And there is untold blessing in being still in the presence of God. Warren Risby makes the observation, he says, the ability to calm your soul and wait before God is one of the most difficult things in the Christian life. Our old nature is restless, the world around us is frantically in a hurry, but a restless heart usually leads to a reckless life. And perhaps we should look at insomnia not as some irritation or something to get us frustrated, but as an opportunity to be still and to rest in the presence of God. So in those quiet, sleepless moments in the middle of the night, don't underestimate what God can do to get your attention or what he may want to say to you if you will only choose to listen to him. The second coincidence is entertainment. See the king was not short of things to do or sources of things to entertain him. He had a harem full of beautiful women He had some of the, probably the best musicians in the land. He had actors, he had games, Xbox, Nintendo Switch, or he would have had them if if they'd been around then. However, he chose to read a book. And once again, we see how God can direct us in the little, the incidental decisions of life as well as the big ones. After my A-levels, I applied to study optometry at, at university. But my grades just weren't good enough. I, I I was one grade short of what I needed to get in, so I accepted my second choice and began studying agricultural zoology at Queen's University Belfast. Yes, it really is as bad as it sounds. I absolutely hated it. It was. But two weeks in, and I got a phone call from a friend who was at Cardiff University studying optometry, and she she told me that somebody had dropped out of the first year and asked if I still wanted to study optometry. Oh yes, I really did. And unknown to me at that time, that one single phone call changed the direction of my entire life. My career, my faith, my wife, even the fact that I am here today. And, and, and I know God could have probably worked it around in many, many different ways, but the sequence of events that followed, which enabled me to study optometry at Cardiff, where I powerfully encountered the Holy Spirit, where I met my wife, where I shaped my future, it still surprises me today. Never underestimate the extraordinary things that God can do through the very ordinary events of your life. For me it was a simple phone call. If that phone call had not been made my life would have probably taken a very different direction. For the king it was reading a book. Third coincidence it's not just any book. He chose the kingdom's chronicles to be read to him. Maybe he thought it would put him back over to sleep again. But what are the chances that the book that he selected and the pages that, he was, that were chosen was the one that recorded Mordecai's service to the king five years earlier. This is more than just a lucky break for Mordecai. This is the marvelous, the mysterious providence of God. Which brings us to the fifth, fourth coincidence. Four, that's four. A five-year-old mistake. If you remember back to chapter two, we highlighted that it seemed slightly, if not really unfair, that Mordecai had been overlooked. But had he been honoured five years before, the events of this critical day would have looked very, very different. Reward and punishment was fundamental to the Persian system of, to maintain loyalty. So it's actually very unusual that things would be overlooked. So how had this happened? Well, we're not told. But what we do know is that God is in charge and already had the day selected for Mordecai to be honoured In the challenges and the troubles of life, you can be sure that your times are in God's hands. Psalm 31 verse 15. You see, God is in charge of scheduling. He's in charge of the events of your life. He knows your past and he knows your future. In fact, nothing happens without him. And we can easily get frustrated and impatient that the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer. And we may may even wonder what God is doing in all of this but God is ultimately in control of every event of your life to fulfill his purposes. Romans chapter 8, 28, we're told, we can, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. First Thessalonians 5:18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And remember, that nothing and no one can stop the plans of God. Even Job, who experienced a tremendous amount of loss and suffering was able to say, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. The prophet Isaiah, he speaks the word of God. In fact, this is what God says. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, What is still to come, I say, my purposes will stand and I will do all that I please. And God has a purpose and He has a plan for your life and for mine. And he never makes a mistake, and he has power to carry out his unique, tailor-made plan for your life. So in the bleakest of circumstances, God is still in control. God is never outsmarted, and you have got nothing to fear. Yet, I want to put a little note of caution in here. Isn't it easy to trust in the sovereignty of God when things are going well in our lives? It's even easy to trust him when it's somebody else who is hurting. And we can be very quick to jump in with some very good advice and try and think we're doing our very best, but actually, it's a very different thing when it's us who is suffering. So, before you give advice to others, listen more and speak less. Good principle for life. Listen more. And speak less. When other people are hurting, clever words are often not the answer. Sometimes a hug is maybe more appropriate. Sometimes just to listen is probably much better. But also, whatever your situation. The clearer you understand the sovereignty and the power of God, the less you're going to fear the calamities of this earth. So I pray, Lord, open our eyes to see you in all of your glory, and all of your majesty, and all of your wisdom, so that when we face the impossible, we might stand firm in Christ Jesus. Lord, we need your help. Do we not? We need his spirit. Fifth coincidence. God's perfect timing. It's possible that Haman had been up all night planning and supervising this construction of the gallows on which he was planning to to kill Mordecai. It certainly was ridiculously early in the morning, but Haman wanted to see the king as soon as possible to get permission for the execution. He wanted to spend the day gloating over the dead body of Mordecai, but God had other plans. He wanted Haman to spend the whole day honoring Mordecai. And the story of Esther teaches us that God is never in a hurry, but he is also never late. He is long-suffering towards the wicked because he longs for them to repent. And he is patient with his people because he wants them to receive the right reward at the right time for the right purpose. And if Mordecai was ever puzzled why the king had promoted Haman and ignored him, he was about to discover that God does not make mistakes, that Mordecai just needed to be patient what about us? We can look at these five simple, apparently chance events, but listen, don't miss out that God is working here. Make sure you see the providence of God, and then stop and praise and thank him for his goodness. Along with David in Psalm 33, he says, The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generation. Or Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, declared in Proverbs 21:30. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord or the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen, God alone is worthy of all honor. He's worthy of all praise. He's worthy of all of our worship. One of the most memorable sporting events that I've ever been to was the London Olympics. We managed to get tickets to the heats of the athletics. Even though it was just the heats, as soon as Usain Bolt walked onto the 200 meter track, the noise and the cheering was electrifying. The thing is, we have all been created to be worshipers. But sadly, the best example of passionate worship is probably not found in our churches, but found on the local football grounds or the sports fields or the music concerts. But whether people admit it or not, we all worship something. Within each one of us, it is God-given desire. We are created to worship the creator of everything, the one who is king of kings and lord of all. But all too often in our broken world, in our sinful lives, we replace our worship of God with things that only bring us temporary joy. Whether rather than than the true worship that is found in Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus wants us to express our appreciation to him. In fact, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinitarian God, the one who creator of everything, the one who is Lord over all, he deserves our thankfulness, he deserves our praise. John Piper writes in his book, Desiring God, poses a thought and a question. He says, we admire people who are secure and composed enough that they don't need to shore up their weakness or to compensate for their deficiencies by trying by trying to get compliments. So why does God want our praise? Well, Piper continues. God is not weak and has no deficiencies, for from him and through him and for him are all things, Romans eleven. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Acts 17, 25. So everything that exists owes his existence to God. And no one can add anything to him that does not already flow from him. Therefore, God's zeal to seek his own glory and to be praised by men is not because he needs to shore up some weakness or to compensate for some deficiency. God has everything he needs in himself. Piper argues that because God is unique and glorious, it is appropriate for him to draw our attention and to seek our praise. He is the source of true joy. So if God was to turn away from himself as the source of all joy, he would cease to be God. He would deny his infinite worth of his glory. And listen, there is nothing and no one greater than him. So what could God give us to enjoy that proves that he is most loving? There is only one possible answer Himself. If He withheld Himself from us, from our thoughts, from our life, from our companionship, no matter what else He gives us, He is not loving. But God is loving. He is eternal, he is omnipotent, omnipresent, he is good, he is just, he is holy, he is righteous and glorious. There is nothing that is beyond his control. He is faithful, true and unchangeable and the better that we get to know him and the more that we appreciate him, the more we will meditate on him and the more our hearts will sing his praises and truly worship him. And listen my friends, that's our calling. That's what God desires of each and every one of us. But Haman, of course, was not interested in honoring God, only himself. So when he was invited into the the king's bedchamber, it would have been a great honor for him and would almost certainly have added fuel to this already proud and egotistical man. So when When the king does not specify which man he wants to honor, the story is heading for another dramatic twist. In Haman's eyes, there's only one person worthy of honor, himself. So he asks for the very best. And as he talks, he's already imagining himself wearing the king's clothes, riding the king's horse, with a noble person leading the horse through the streets and commanding the people to honor. It sounds like a coronation, which is exactly the impression that Haman wants to give to the people of Sushan. It would appear that he was secretly hoping that he would become the next king's successor. But all of this wasn't for Haman, it was for Mordecai, who is significantly called Mordecai the Jew. By the king. So, despite the fact that the king has a royal edict to eradicate the Jewish citizens and the Jewish nations, the king is now honoring one of the leading Jewish citizens. A totally bizarre twist. But Mordecai has saved the king's life, and Xerxes has to pay the debt. And perhaps by honoring Mordecai, maybe he's thinking that he can calm this, this very troubled city. Now we're not told how Haman, how shocked Haman was when he discovered that all the honor was going to the person that he hated the most. But he's been around the king long enough to know that he's got to hide his own true feelings. And what was about to happen was going to perpetuate an already ironic situation. For almost a day, Haman would be the servant of Mordecaiah. And he had the task of commanding the people to honour him. It, it, it must have grated on him so badly, because the thing that Mordecai had refused to do for Haman, now Haman was telling others to do for Mordecai. There is no way that Haman or Esther—sorry, there's no way that Mordecai or Esther could have seen this coming. But from God's perspective, the outcome is certain. There are twists, there are turns, there are ups and downs in this story. But we we can know what is going on if we know who is in control. So what about our lives? You know, I think it is very difficult, if not impossible, for us to see life from the viewpoint of a sovereign God. It is only when we look back that we sometimes will see the bigger picture, but even that is rare. rare. But we can apply what we learn from the story of Esther. We may laugh and we may cry at the ups and the downs of our life's story, but we can still know where it's going if we know the God who is in control. And the wonderful message of the gospel is that we can. You see, God has revealed himself to us in Jesus. Jesus is our connection with God. In fact, Jesus himself said to his disciples, if you want to know the Father, you look at me. Jesus is the Son of God and being both fully God and fully man, he is the only one who can bring peace between us and a holy God because through faith in Jesus, the barrier of your sin that separates you from God can be removed. And this was done once and for all through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. But you still have a choice to make. You can either ignore him and face the consequences of your sin, of death and hell, or you can choose him, the one who first chose you. You can know God through trusting in Jesus, by repenting of your sin, by asking him to be Lord, to be saviour of your life. And God is bringing about his purposes through every event of your life. So earlier on we asked the question, what is God doing in all of this? Well, God wants to get your attention through the situations, through the circumstances of life. Just as it was in Haman's life, he wants to get your attention. And he will use whatever means is needed. So that you would come to him and know him. That is how much he loves you. He will rescue you. He will protect you. When you call on him, he will answer you. He will be with you in trouble. He will deliver you and honor you. It's my paraphrase of Psalm 91 verse 14. But these are the promises of God. Or as First Samuel 2, 20 puts it, those who honor me, those who honor God, I will honor the almighty God who's at work in the events of Mordecai's life and in Esther's life is also at work in your life too. we going to drop back into our story for a moment. Verse 12, Esther chapter 6. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. And he told Jerush, his wife... And all the friends, everything that had happened to him, the advisors and his wife Jerry said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him, you will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuch arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. And we're not told how Mordecai reacted to this amazing honor of being moved and prayed through the streets, though surely he must have been encouraged that his prayers had been answered. But afterwards, he just humbly goes back to his normal post. See, praise doesn't change a humble man, which is why God can trust his blessings to humble people because they honor only the Lord. By contrast, Haman was totally humiliated by his encounter with God's providence. He returned home, he's sick at heart, only to have salt rubbed into his wounds by his partners in crime. Haman had lost his appetite for the banquet, but he must go, for God had more in store for Haman. But the tables were turning. The warning signals should have been obvious. The humiliation in the streets and those words at home should have alarmed Haman to make him change his plans. God is speaking to him. God is getting his attention just like he's calling each of us. God was warning Haman, but he was not listening. But God does not force people to turn from sin and to trust in his son Jesus. There is a choice to be made. And if Haman had sincerely repented and asked for mercy, it's very likely that his own life would have been saved along with the life of his 10 sons. So we would do well to learn the lessons from Haman. It's so a quote. It says, only a fool learns from his own mistakes. The wise man learns from the mistakes of others. And the big lesson that Haman teaches us is that when God sounds the alarm bells, it pays to stop, to look, to listen, to obey. God's desire for sinners is not that they should die, but that they should turn from their sins and be saved. For God so loves the world so much that he give his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, we are told that there is joy in heaven, a wonderful celebration when just one sinner repents. So as much as we may detest Haman and his evil deeds, we must keep in mind that God loves sinners. He wants them to be saved. And God, who is long-suffering, who brings will bring various influences on people's lives in order to encourage them to turn from their evil ways, to repent and to follow Jesus. God wants to get your attention. He wants you to listen. He wants you to follow. He wants you to obey. And he perhaps is speaking to someone here right now. Don't walk away from God. Don't ignore his call. Come to Jesus today. He really knows what's best for you. So the next time you're asked the question, what are you doing tomorrow? Think before you reply. Pray before you plan. James tells us that what we ought to say is if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And whether you're planning for your career or for your church life or for your business or home or for school or maybe for retirement, your desire should be that Christ's will triumphs there more than your own plans. After all, his plans are better than yours will ever be because he is in complete control.